All right. Our text this morning is the text, <clears throat> excuse me, that Noah already read to us. So I'm not going to, going to uh, for sake of time, uh, reread that. But we're going to be looking at chapter, all of chapter 9, which is, I know, a big undertaking. We'll see how this goes. Uh, but we'll be looking this under the title of Sowing Bountifully. And so we return this week to the last section of Paul's two block uh, chapters, this two chapter block where he is encouraging the Corinthians to follow through with their commitment to help provide for the life giving need of the Jewish Christians who are in Jerusalem, who maybe are going through a famine, uh, plus some other problems that they're dealing with. And we've, we've seen the different ways that he is seeking to motivate them most fundamentally by the reality of the rich grace of Jesus toward them so that they could be rich in grace toward others, including rich in benevolence. Which brings us then to chapter 9, the second half of this two-chapter block. Chapter 8, we've already covered over, I believe it was three weeks or so, and this week we're going to try to cover uh, just this entire chapter. So what we see in verses 1 through 5, I'm not going to go in, de- to, into, uh, in detail because it's really a summary of everything that we've already seen over the past two or three weeks. Verses 1 through 5 wrap up Paul's specific address to the Corinthians about the offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Since we've already just gone through these previous chapter, the previous chapter in details, I'm, I'm just going to here give a couple of lines summary of what Paul is saying here. In a nutshell, he affirms their readiness, the effect of their zeal on other churches, and his intention to send some of the men to pick up the offering from them to take to Jerusalem. He assures them that this is a willing gift, is to be a willing gift, not a kind of payoff in response to his like apostolic threats. So these first Five verses, basically, that's the summary. I want, I want to send these guys. I want, I want to come. I don't want to be ashamed and be proud of you. I don't want to be humiliated. So just go ahead and follow through. It's like a final application exhortation in regards to the particular offering. But from here, beginning of verse 6, Paul moves on to more general ideas that are not specifically tethered to this unique situation with the Corinthians. Being more general in scope, We have truths that are, I think, more easily applicable and accessible to us in verse 6 down through the end of the chapter. And that's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this morning. And the first thing that we see in verse 6 is a basic principle of giving. This is where it gets generic applicable to us now, even though we're not sending a specific offering to Jerusalem. And Paul says in verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul here pens a proverb based on a basic agricultural reality, particularly before the time of the second agricultural revolution. And that basic reality is this, that if you undertook a work of farming or gardening, and you were sparing in your use of just just using a few seeds, as few seeds as possible, then here's something that you knew for sure. Your harvest will be small. This is not jack and the beanstalk. This isn't magic magic legumes. These are seeds that yield 
yield by their very nature a certain limited amount. So if you sow sparingly small amounts of seed, the outcome at best is going to be a small harvest. That, that's just the nature of nature. However, if you planted a large field with large amounts of seed, the likelihood of a larger harvest was greater. Given generally uh, uh, favorable conditions, that's what you should expect. Now, this is likely, but not guaranteed. I mean, you can go out, sow all of your seed, be very generous with it, and then have a terrible year of drought, disaster, and disease, and, and you won't have a, a good harvest. But here's, generally speaking, large amounts of seed will yield larger harvests, probably, but what was for sure guaranteed, if you use smaller amount of seeds, the smaller your, sur- your harvest will be sure to be. That's the basic principle he's using here. Now, inherent in this pr- principle is the process of risk. If a farmer in the ancient world planted all of their seed, there was the possibility if that if a disaster struck, there would not be enough to feed their family or to plant the following year. So Paul is applying this agricultural principle to kingdom giving, and we'll have some things to say in just a few lines about faithfulness and God's promise of faithfulness. But before he does, he addresses the heart of the giver. So he starts out with the proverb, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. That's a guarantee. If you sow bountifully in God's way of doing things, not agriculturally, but spiritually, you will reap bountifully. And that's a promise we're going to come back to. Which then brings us to verse 7. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In one sense, the disposition, we could say, of a real-world farmer is irrelevant to the outcome of his crop. Whatever his mood, let's just say he's just having... He's just having a bad time in his marriage and he's angry, but he's still doing the work in the ground. It's not like he's going to come to the harvest and say, oh man, this is just ruined because I was in a bad mood that day. But for the Christian, Paul writes of a disposition of heart that as that seed is sown is necessary for God to respond in love for that particular thing. He loves a cheerful giver. He speaks of two points of disposition here. First of all, he writes that each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's the first thing, the first necessary disposition is, it's a decision I've made. He puts the responsibility on each individual and doesn't lay out some universal rule, everybody must give X. No, he puts the responsibility on the individual, what they have decided in their heart. He contrasts this heart decision to someone who is undecided, uncertain, or reluctant. He also contrasts this willingness to someone feeling under pressure, under compulsion, maybe by internal guilt or external manipulation. So the person needs to decide, this is what I want to give. But the second thing is, this decision to give for the needs of others should be accompanied by cheerfulness. It's not just a mere exercise of the will, but 
an emotional uh, orientation toward cheerfulness. Now, this word famously comes from the Greek word hilaros, from which we derive our word, our modern word, hilarious. You'll hear sermons about God loves a hilarious giver. So as you're giving, you should be. (laughs) When we think of something hilarious in our day, especially beginning the first usage that we have record of is in the 1920s. What comes to mind is something that is extremely amusing or funny. And quite frankly, that's just not what Paul means here. It doesn't quite convey the meaning. This word is most properly, at least in in the array of words that we have, cheerful is probably the best translation. It conveys being happy or rejoicing in the ability to give, and therefore it makes me happy and cheerful to be able to do this. Not kind of some, you know, ha ha, it's just like, I'm just glad to do this, and it makes me happy to do this. And Paul says the person must decide in their heart and in do so, doing so, do it with cheerfulness that God loves these dispositions. In other words, the person shouldn't be giving from hesitancy, wondering if they're doing the right thing. It also shouldn't be from someone strong-arming them like a mafia boss. Rather, it is the disposition of willingness, decision, joy, and gratitude to be able to do someone else real good because of love. That's what God loves. This is the disposition God loves, and why does God love it? Because it reflects his own heart, because God is a willing and cheerful giver. It reflects his own heart, and so he, of course, loves his own image as it reflects what is good about his own character. Because it reflects his own heart in giving sunshine and rain on the just and the unjust of all of his creatures. That's why we read the psalm that we did earlier. It is his own disposition. He gives cheerfully and happily in sending his son into the world to bring rescue to needy people lost in sin. You see, God is the ultimate cheerful giver, and it is that God's giving cheerfully to us that then becomes the motivation for us giving willingly and cheerfully to others. Which brings us to verses 8 through 11, God's faithfulness in our giving. God's faithfulness in our giving. In verse 8, Paul returns to his favorite word in this section, grace. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to, to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As God's grace flows through his people for the good of others, he is able to make that grace rebound back to them. And as this grace returns, it is a promise that we will have what we truly need at all times so that we can then push back out and abound in every good work. So there's this like cyclical thing that's going on here. Similar to, again, agriculture. The farmer plants the seed and what is his hope? That he'll have a harvest and a crop. He'll be able to gain seed for the next year. And that will perpetuate his ability to continue to grow and to provide and to do good. That's what Paul says here is that it is the guarantee that he who makes that grace abound in us as we abound in it toward others, he will return that to us. Why? So we can buy bigger houses and bigger cars and more things and more. No, so that we can abound in every good work toward others. Which brings us to verse nine. As he says, it is written, quoting from Psalm 112, verse nine, 
He, God, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So in quoting Psalm 112, verse 9, we see the disposition of God in giving freely to the poor. But this whole two-chapter block reminds us that God doesn't do this out of thin air. Now, he, did, he did that literally with the, uh, the uh, pilgrims in the Exodus coming out of Egypt. As Israel goes through, manna is provided daily for them for the course of 40 years. But that was a very unusual circumstance. But here it reminds us that it's not out of thin air, but God gives freely to the poor by the loving care of his people, i.e. the Corinthians, the Macedonians, and the other churches. By the loving care of his people, his body, his image bearers on earth, he gives through his people to those who are in need. Giving to those in need is seen throughout the Bible, but especially is a feature of the Old Testament law. In many cases, it was an issue of just care, not just care, but just righteous, equitable care for those who were powerless to change their own circumstances. God's righteousness endures forever, he says, through the people who love his righteous law, which includes loving our neighbors as ourselves and doing to them in bad circumstances, what we would want them to do to us in equally bad circumstances. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, speaking of God, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, going back to the natural world here, verses 10 and 11, over which God rules, he reminds us that God is the one who supplies needs for us to sow seed, to grow things, and ultimately to provide bread for food. He says that as one sows, God will supply and multiply seed for continuing to sow. In the realm of finances, as he is using it here, it translates into an increase of being able to do good, not just to ourselves and our families, but also to others in need. And ultimately, this culminates in the final judgment, where we will see the full harvest of our righteous deeds. Many years ago, I heard a phrase that went very deep, and it was something like this, that seed sown is as seed lost until the harvest. Like there's an act of faith in putting that seed, which you can use for other things, at least in the ancient world and pre-industrial world, the seed that you could actually use, you would eat, you would feed your family to put that into the ground so that it would die and be inaccessible for the majority of the year was an act of faith in God or for the pagans, the gods, that like I need to wait and I'm dependent on the fecundity of the earth and the rains and the sunshine. It's out of my control. And that, that's what I'm waiting for, that harvest. And that's what we do as Christians. Ultimately, our contributions and benevolence to many people and care even for the church will not be seen fully until the harvest when Christ returns. Then we will see the fullness. In verse 11, he reminds us that the return we receive in doing good is for the purpose of continued generosity. So let's say I give something, I care for others, I do good, and then lo and behold, 
God provides for me, surprises me in some way, grants me something through a, a bonus or a raise or, or, or a gift from someone. It's not for mere self-indulgence. It's God has now in faithfulness given to me so that I can continue. He has replenished my seed bag so I can continue to be generous. With the right disposition of heart and the knowledge of the fact that God is the one who gives us what we need and for the care of others, God receives from us and others the fruit of thanksgiving to him. He says there, this will produce in our ability to do good to others, thanksgiving to God from them and from us as we are thankful for his provision. Which brings us then finally to the last section here, verses 12 through 13, the outcome of gracious giving. Paul writes in verse 12, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the need of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God, thanksgivings to God. So in these concluding verses, Paul writes of the great outcome of their generosity to the Jerusalem saints. This includes supplying the needs of needy people and overflowing thanksgiving to God there in verse 12. But even beyond that, in verse 13, we see Paul describing something that I alluded to two weeks ago at the conclusion of my sermon. I stated that while Paul would have been concerned for the welfare of all the Christians and all the churches, Jew and Gentile alike, he seems to have in the New Testament a particular burden for the believing Jews in Jerusalem. Now here the important backdrop is what has been called the Gentile problem. Remember that Christianity, as we call it, being followers of Jesus, begins primarily with Jewish people, including the apostles, including the closest disciples of Jesus, both men and women. They're primarily Jew, Jews. On the day of Pentecost, there were Jews gathered from the surrounding nations who believed the gospel. But then the good news of Jesus begins through the ministry of Peter and then eventually Paul to go out to the Gentiles. This raises, in the mind of Jewish believers, significant issues and tensions of how non-Jewish believers fit into the plan of God. And Paul will have a lot to say about that in his letters. But in summary, the Gentile problem is this. Some, some really large questions for them. How much of the Old Testament law applies to the Gentiles? In, in this gospel, this new covenant, like how much it was clear under the old covenant. I mean, if you wanted to become a part of the Jewish community, you had to be circumcised. You had to keep the laws. You, had, you basically had to be a proselyte into that community. But under the new covenant, does a Gentile essentially have to identify as Jewish in order to be a follower of Messiah? Should Gentiles receive circumcision? Should they keep the dietary laws? Should they keep the Jewish feast days? On top of these real theological and, and practical questions from the Old Testament law that, you know, we, we have our answers now 2,000 years later. I mean, we've had a little bit of time to work on this. But when there's no New Testament scriptures and you've got apostles who live with Jesus and Jesus, if you look in the Gospels, he actually doesn't talk a lot about this. He actually says, you know, I've come for, for, for the house of Israel and not, not the Gentiles. And it's not until Pentecost he's like, okay, here's the deal. 
Now you go out. Now you go get people of, of, uh, of other nations that are of this fold. But there just wasn't a lot of teaching up to this point. Like, okay, as they become one of us, I mean, we're all circumcised, at least the men. We're all circumcised. Jesus doesn't seem to teach us against keeping the Sabbath or the dietary laws or any of those things. He pushed against the hypocrisy of some of the practices. But now there's a question among the apostles and the early church, which is predominantly Jewish. Now, Jewish for them meant thousands of years of enculturation in a very specific, deep, deep, deep culture. And now there's these Gentile dogs coming along who are believing in the Jewish Messiah. And there's this even among the Jews cultivated disfavor toward unclean Gentiles. I mean, they did things like ate bacon and pork and, you know, worship pagans, pagan gods. And so understandably, the Jewish believing Christian community doesn't know what to do with the Gentiles. And they're skeptical. I mean, really, Paul, you go into a Philippian jail, there's an earthquake. Someone says, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. All right, I'm in. Baptize him. And you can imagine the Jewish people going, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. Does he even know what you're talking about? And so here's Peter and Paul, and that's why at times... Peter has to go back and like, look, let me tell you about this guy Cornelius and an angel came and there was a vision and then the Holy Spirit came and they spoke in tongues just like us and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Jews are like, well, given that mounting amount of evidence, I guess we, we need to include them in. But there's still tensions like, should they be circumcised? Should they, should they, what, what exactly should they do? So that's the whole backdrop of this passage and Paul's particular burden for the Jewish community. There's then, for the Gentiles, the question of status. Them being engrafted in, are they second-class citizens in this, to them, foreign religion of the Jewish religion of which Messiah has come? Or do Gentiles, I mean, think of the Jew for thousands of years being told, you are the people, you are the and it's true. You're not of the goyim. You're not of the nations. Do these Gentiles have equal status to a child of Abraham? I mean, they just perish the thought. And those are some of the things that the New Testament address. These are problems seen in the book of Acts and also comes out in Paul's letters. And Paul is constantly dealing with, and he loves his Jewish friends and family, believing and unbelieving. But we see, particularly in the book of Romans, struggling with the difficulty of Jews and Gentiles existing in the same church together. But here we see that his particular burden for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem is something like this. He longs for the Jews not to be skeptical of all of those Gentiles living out there like in Macedonia and Corinth. Corinth? There's followers of the Messiah in Corinth who were pagan worshipers and were with prostitutes and bowed down to idols. You're telling us, you're telling us that those are the kind of people we are to consider equal status and standing as, as the believing, Messiah-believing sons of Abraham. You can, I hope, feel some of the psychological tension there. 
And Paul wants them to be fully embraced. He had been set apart, as a matter of fact, uniquely in Romans eleven thirteen and 1 Timothy 2, 7. He says he was an apostle and teacher to the Gentiles, himself being a Jew. At this point, the Gentile problem continues as the gospel has spread. And Paul has thought through ways, how can I ingratiate and show my Jewish believing Christian friends and family in Jerusalem that what God is doing among the Gentiles is like legit. And this whole two chapter section is one of Paul's devices in order to try to ingratiate the Gentile believers to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. He wants them to see the grace of God in the Gentiles and thank God and accept the Gentiles. And so as we come to verses 13 and 14, I want you to read it in that particular light. And I think it will make this passage make total sense. Verse 13, by there, the Jewish believing communities approval of this service, the offering of the Gentiles to them. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the good news of the Messiah. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Paul's hope is they will receive this offering. God will open their heart. They will see the grace of God to the Gentiles that despite there being this wall between us, culturally, nationally, religiously, your care for us in time of need and hunger and your willingness to put food on the table of our children and help us to supplement our income when we can't get jobs because we've been ousted out of the synagogue by our own families. They will see your confession of their Messiah through your giving and your generosity and they will long for you, not be skeptical of you, long for you, And they'll begin to pray for you because they see God surpassing grace on you. That's what's going on. That's why Paul writes two entire chapters, because the gospel is at stake here. Not just not just look, you need to be more generous and give money because these people need this thing. But Paul has designed this whole enterprise in order to ingratiate the Gentiles in the Mediterranean world to the Jews. And if he can do that, he will have done something very significant. His hope is that this will cause, in contrast to suspicion, jealousy, and jealousy, a view of them as second-class citizens, rather a longing and praying for them, which has a way of undermining hostility. In other words, Paul hopes that this will tear down the barriers that God had already torn down in Jesus Christ. This will be a help in overcoming the pride, prejudice, and racism that had been bred in the Jewish people and vice versa, so that they can embrace the Gentiles as Jesus had embraced them, dying for them to bring peace and make one new man in Christ. 
which then makes sense of this verse. Paul will usually only give a doxology at the end of some astounding kind of a thing. And, and just like, hey, follow through your offerings so these people can eat would not yield this kind of doxology. But what I've just described, what Christ has done in Jew and Gentile and how there can be reconciliation interpersonally when God had already done it theologically, yields this doxology. Verse 15, thanks be to God for this, for his inexpressible gift. The gift of what? Of taking people who have been separated and broken in their relationships with God and one another and reconciling them through Christ to God and to one another. So Paul concludes this section with praise for God. The gift he is referring to is not merely the promise of provision, what he has already talked about. You know, the inexpressible gift is not the seed in, in response to your generosity. It's not that. The gift he is referring to is the inexpressible of gift of his own son who died to bring about reconciliation, not only between him and humanity, but humanity with one another. For this, he thanks God and he invites them and us to likewise give thanks for the abounding love and mercy that we find in his son. So in applying the end of this chapter, I think that while these two chapters are often used as one of the tithing passages that pastors preach, you know, when they want, you know, the deacons or somebody comes to them and goes, offerings are down, pastor, need to preach, we preach on tithing. Where do they go? This is one of the primary passages, chapter eight, chapter nine. But what we've seen here is that there's much, much more going on in chapter eight, nine than financial stewardship. As a matter of fact, in these two chapters, which he says more about giving than anything else, Paul never refers to a specific percentage. While I think the New Testament church probably worked on the basic assumption of the Old Testament tithe as the regular gift for the support of the work of the church, I think that's legitimately an assumption. Paul goes beyond the tithe, far beyond the tithe. Instead, he sets up the principle of determined and cheerful generosity. Again, you've you got to determine it, and it needs to be cheerful, but it's based on he who was rich, though he was rich, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And the generosity out of what we have, not out of what we don't have. You see, for some people, 10% of their income invested in doing the work of the kingdom is absolutely insufficient. If, if we had a Bill Gates or if we had a uh, Zuckerberg among us, wouldn't that be amazing if they were actually converted? And not that we need their money, but it would just be amazing if they were converted. They became followers of Jesus, assuming they're not. I don't know. I have no evidence that they are. But assuming somebody like that, and then they say, you know, I've got, you know, I'm practically one of the richest men or, or uh, Elon Musk or somebody, richest man in history from one thing that I heard. Does generosity for him look like 10% to the church? And then he just uses the rest of his expenditure of income and in whatever he wants and, you know, has, uh, wins a couple of more 
baby mamas and has a few more children that he can pay, pay, pay uh, child support to. And, you know, that's just enough. That's sufficient. No, for some, clearly 10% in generosity for the goods and the needs of others. And when I say the work of the church, I really mean the work of the kingdom of generosity, of care for the poor, whether it's in the local congregation or outside the local congregation. So for some, 10% of their income invested and they just write it off. That's it. Everything else, the rest of the 90% net or gross, whatever I determine, that's all mine. You know, I paid God my tax and now it's all mine. And I get a raise and I get a better this and I get a bigger that. And just, just the assumption, the default of those things. But for others, 10% of their income would it put them in incredible financial strain. And I have dear brothers and sisters over the years who they didn't do it, but nearly with budget in hand just said, we just can't. It's not because we've got, you know, 10 subscription services to all the movie channels and have a big debt on our house and, and things that, that are beyond our reach. And we're just, you know, exorbitantly buying the best of organic food and can't, you know, we just, we're just, Throwing it, throwing it, throwing it, and therefore we can't. No, legitimately, they come and they just say, no, here's, this is, I've never seen their budgets, but that I remember. But it's, you know, squeezed so tightly that 10% for them would be an incredible burden. So that's where these passages go beyond the principle of 10%. Not that we leave it behind completely. Again, I think the early church probably works on that principle, and as a general principle, has a lot of weight to it. But once we move into the realm of giving out of what we have with generous and happy hearts, each person then has to wrestle for themselves. Not just tell me how much to give so I can write the check. Now I see how God has prospered, and I have to work, wrestle with his generosity and, 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 and ask myself the question, am I a generous person? Are we the generous hearts reflecting the indescribable gift of God's mercy in Jesus Christ or living by worldly standards as if what we do and what we spend is merely our own decision? Going back to Paul in chapter 8, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, this includes generosity of time, generosity of treasures, generosity of talents, abilities, gifts that we have. It includes, of course, all of these things as well. But let me close this two-chapter section, reading Paul, what he addresses, how he addresses it in another place, and that is in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age... Now, it would be interesting if I sat here and said, okay, now let's take a survey. How many of you think you're rich? It would be interesting based on your thinking, am I rich? Okay, well, who's rich? Elon Musk is rich. Bill Gates is rich. Those people that live down in that certain area of town, they're rich and so on. So no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not rich. But richness in a, in a worldwide standard and in an ancient standard, both, the majority of us are rich in biblical terms. Not all of us. Some of us are not. But the majority of us are rich in that we have 
Many of us have never prayed with with the the kind of blood earnestness. Give us this day our daily bread because I look in the cabinet and there is no bread and there are no beans and there is no soup and there is no milk. The prayer at the beginning of the day that everything hinges on this particular day and what I'm able to get. Therefore, give us this day our daily bread, because otherwise, if you don't give it to us, we ain't got none. That that's how much of the ancient world. And third world countries live, I remember being in the Philippines and going into one of the little uh, shanties and being told that this man there laying on this hot linoleum floor uh, with his wife and his children uh, was out of capital and he was a peanut seller and he did not have any money. He was going to have to beg for money in order to buy peanuts to sell for a profit. And he was being uh, helped by ministry that uh, his family was being helped by ministry. You may uh, be aware of CCM in the Philippines that we pray for and support uh, a couple of children there, or at least one now, I think. Um, but that for him, he, he needed capital for him to get up and say, give us this day our daily bread like that. And so most of us, I mean, if the short store shut down, God forbid, but if the store shut down for a few days and we had a fuel crisis or something, Many of us would get by with what we have in our cabinets. That, by definition, is rich. Some of us can afford and have some things to fall back on. And we may not have the biggest bank account, but biblically speaking, we have more than what is our basic need, most of us. It is to those people, because worst thing I want to do is read this passage and like immediately like, as to as for the rich, and immediately you got, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. Like I get an old car, I get an old truck, got leaks in my ceiling, I've got my, my, my faucet is leaking, you know, I'm not rich, I'm not rich. So I wanted to, to put the bar more realistically. As a matter of fact, Paul says in the same section in First Timothy, if we have food and clothing, and I'm assuming by that he also means shelter. Uh, we are to be content. So anything above that is considered more than what is necessary. So here's what he says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them. And, and that is, Paul, Paul is pretty careful in what he recommends and what he charges. And he tells Timothy this, you command them with divine authority. You charge them. Not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Haughty hopes, it's the difference between leaning on and trusting in riches. And here again, it's, it's not strictly speaking riches, it's just wealth, money, things that money can buy. It says, tell them not to do that. Well, Okay, that, that's a very an abstract thing. Now, here's the practical. They, that is the rich in this present age, which I am arguing is the majority of us, are to be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future 
so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So I want to close by thanking many of you that I know, and I'm sure many that I don't know, who are generous, not only to our church, but also to the needs that are around you. To thank you for not being haughty, but setting your hope not on riches, but on the future foundation of the treasures that are in Jesus for the harvest that is coming. Thank you for those of you who have learned generosity and have grown in generosity. For those of us who find our hearts constricted, may the Lord help us. Let me just, let me read this last section here. This is where I need to go rather than riffing for the next five minutes. May the Lord help us to bask in the generosity of God in his work of grace in us, to take heed to this charge. As we do so, may we trust in God to provide for all things that we have need of out of his faithfulness as we store up for ourselves treasures for the future, treasures that are incorruptible, undefiled, and that do not fade away. So, Lord, we thank you for the indescribable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the riches that have been paid out in your mercy to us. And pray, Lord, not out of constraint, but willingly, as each determines in our heart cheerfully to have our eyes and our hearts opened to the needs that are around us. Lord, we all recognize that there are such massive needs of poverty and oppression in the world that all of our families here could collectively withdraw every cent that we have that that is able to be liquidated and write one check and send it to one nation and within a week it will not have made a dent hardly at all. But Lord, rather than discounting ourselves for what we can't do, we pray for those in proximity to where we live, work, and play, and worship, and ask for hearts that are generous. We pray this out of the grace and mercy of